You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. Well, I wonder if you believed that the hand of God guides human history, what difference that would make in your life. If we really believed that what God did determine the future of our lives, that he was, his hand was active in our life and in the circumstances around our life, what we would do differently. I know not all of us believe that, and I know that most of us don't believe that all the time. But I know that the Apostle Paul, the great Rabbi Saul of Tarsus, when he came face to face with the risen Savior, Jesus Christ, I became convinced of it. That he who began a good work in you would complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. And that all things work together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. And I know that John Calvin uh, believed it. And, you know, for centuries it's, it's been good fun to make sport of, of John Calvin. You would be laughing at him. And, of course, people are predestined to do that. Uh, <laughs> But one of the charges that is uh, cast feet of John Calvin is that if you really believed that God ordained everything, then this would radically pacify us. You know, that it would push us back into the seat of our pants and we just hold up our hands and say, well, then whatever, you know, do whatever you're going to do. And, and we would lose any incentive to take action. I want to push back on that idea this morning. There's in uh, Hollywood, producers talk about, you're familiar with this term, story arc. Story arc is a narrative theme that uh, persists through several different discrete episodes, like, like in a miniseries, you know, like, like 24 or Lost. I don't know how many of you watch Lost. I, I hear great things about that, and I would like to appreciate Lost. But I've got to say, and I've only watched it once, actually less than once, because I, I turned it on, and I just could not figure out what in the world was happening. And I, just, I got lost. And uh, I guess it worked. It's, it's, you know, it's, 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 there's this story arc right, that goes through. And if, if you haven't been watching all along, or if you don't have patience for that little kind of recap at the beginning of the episode, then the episode itself is utterly meaningless. It's just kind of random. And there are those who argue that there really is no story arc to human history. There really is no overarching meaning that moves creation from beginning to middle to end. And I frankly think it's those of us who believe that that really have an incentive to do nothing. I think it's when we give up the idea that there is this sense of destiny in history that God does guide that we say, well, I'm just living in an isolated episode that has no connection to any other episode and I might as well sit back and just enjoy myself as best I know how. And yet, if we think that there is a grand story in the creation and that somehow I might participate in that, I think it calls forth from us the kind of heroism that we... We see in the, in the, in the great uh, stories of people's lives who do heroic things. They believe that their life can amount to something more. They believe in strategic disruptions, that the status quo isn't the way the story ends, and that it's worth pushing against to work for change, because change is coming. 
Well, the Bible teaches us that there is a story arc. And in fact, the Bible suggests that we can actually know something about what that story is. And one of the great themes of the story is, is the theme of hesed, a biblical word for kindness, hesed. And the story of Ruth shows us the hesed of God who moves uh, the hands of history and also the hesed of human beings who participate in that motion. So I want to invite you to open up to Ruth. Pull that black book out in front of you, the Pew Bible, and turn to page 212. Or if you brought a Bible, open to Ruth chapter 4. And let's stand together and honor the God who gives us his word that we might know the meaning of our lives. Uh, by reading aloud, Ruth chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. And if you're visiting, when we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And if you think it might be true, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully. We're reading God's holy word. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When they came together, the Lord made her conceive and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without next of kin. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has borne him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her bosom, and became his nurse. The women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He became the father of Jesse, the father of David. This is the word of the Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what we just read will endure forever. Please be seated. If you were with us worshiping last week, we saw that hesed, this Hebrew word for kindness, means loving kindness, loving loyalty, help for the helpless. It's a robust word for friendship. And there were two uh, dynamics that we focused on in particular. One was blessing and the other was covenant, both of which hold up the relationship in the presence of the living God and the risen Jesus Christ. Today we're going to look at three mini-episodes in this story and three characters. And we're going to see what that chesed looks like in practical terms as we try to share it with people around us. The first aspect of chesed that we see, we see in the actions of Boaz. So let's look at chapter 2. And remember what's happened in chapter 1. This whole story of Ruth begins with a crisis in the life of a woman named Naomi, who's really the... The focus of the story more than Ruth. Naomi is an Israelite woman who flees with her husband, Elimelech. Coincidentally, his name happens to mean, my God is king, Elimelech. And they're taken, they go away to Moab, a neighboring country, an enemy country, in search of food in the midst of a crisis of famine. And there, Elimelech passes away. Naomi is widowed. Her two sons take on uh, Moabite wives. Oh, no. And then her sons die, and she's left alone, destitute, with these two Moabite women, no food in a foreign land. And she comes back to uh, Bethlehem, and as she does, one of these two wives returns to Moab. The other, Ruth, comes with her and pledges herself to Naomi as, as, a, as a friend. 
And when they arrive back in Naomi's hometown, Bethlehem, which is, of course, in Israel, Naomi is honest enough to say she is bitter. The Lord has brought me back empty, she says. But the narrator is careful to note at the very end of chapter one. Now, they came back to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Hmm. It just happened to be barley season. And, of course, as these two women try to... uh, make do in their poverty. One day, Ruth comes to Naomi and says, mother-in-law, or mom, as I probably think she would have referred to her, uh, can I go out into the fields and try to find some food? And uh, randomly, I suppose, uh, she went out across the fields outside the city in the fields of Bethlehem and finds herself in the field of one man who was named Boaz. Coincidentally, happens to be a relative of the deceased Elimelech distant cousin of some kind. Ruth does not know this, but she just goes about picking up the food that the laborers have left in the field, the scraps, the bits of grain uh, left behind. And it just so happened, we're told, Boaz comes back to Bethlehem, back to his field, and he sees this young woman, Ruth, picking up stray pieces of fallen grain. And he asks his laborers, now, who is this woman, this foreigner? This is, this is where we pick up the story here in uh, Ruth chapter 2, verse 8. Let me read a few verses. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young woman. Remember, the story of Ruth is set in the days of Judges. If we've just read the book of Judges, we understand it ends with violence and murder and rape. It's a dangerous... So he says... Uh, Keep close to my young woman. Keep your eyes on the field that's being reaped and follow behind them. I've ordered the young men not to bother you. If you get thirsty, go to the vessels and drink from what the young men have drawn. Then Ruth fell prostrate with her face to the ground and said to him, Why have I found favor? It's the Hebrew word for grace. In your sight, that you should take notice of me when I am a foreigner. So what is the hesed of Boaz? Well, there's a rule uh, in the Old Testament that provides for the social welfare of the destitute of Israel. It's called the law of gleaning. You see it in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And the rule enforced would have required a landowner not to harvest the corners of their field. And even in the center of the field, not to strip bare all the stalks, but to leave something behind for uh, orphans and widows, the poor and uh, aliens who lived in their midst. And so Boaz comes and he finds this Moabitess woman and, you know, she's essentially trespassing. And he he doesn't say, I got my shotgun, who are you? You know, get off my field. He says, "Uh, my daughter. That seems to me something quite a bit more than just upholding the rule of uh, gleaning. He doesn't say, my friend laboring in my field, my poor fellow citizen, my neighbor. He says, my daughter. Now, in no sense is Ruth a daughter to Boaz. Uh, Boaz may be distantly related to Elimelech, the deceased husband of Naomi. Ruth is a Moabitess. She's a foreigner. And so you see immediately that Part of Hesed, the Hesed of Boaz, is to, to relate to someone not according to uh, rules, but according to a relationship. 
This is the first principle of Hesed. It puts relationship over rules. My daughter, an intimate relationship. And this is the way he will relate to Ruth. He will pray for her in the following verses. He say, uh, may the wings of the Lord in whose, uh, in whose protection you take refuge guard you. He, he invites her to the noonday meal and shoves a huge plate of food right in front of her. And then offset, he tells all of his uh, hands, hired hands, to uh, go easy on the grain, to leave even whole chunks and bunches in the field uh, for Ruth to pick up. And by the end of the day, when Ruth go home, goes home, we're told she takes an ephah of barley home, 30 to 50 pounds. You know, she's carrying that in her apron or whatever, you know, back to, back to Naomi. This is the chesed of Boaz, so much more than the rules require. It's not the way we live our lives. This is the season when uh, the U District starts to swell with uh, college students. And we love college students in this church. And one of the things you do when you move into your dorm room, right, is, you know, you sit in your bed, your duffel bag there, and you start to, start to eye the furniture. You know, there's the, the bureau and the window. And, uh, and it doesn't take long for two roommates to figure out where the demilitarized zone is between each of their turps, right? It's this kind of unspoken rule that if your sock falls on my side of the room, uh, that's a violation. Uh, oftentimes, it's good for us to have rules in roommate situations. I remember when I lived in off-campus housing in college, um, we didn't have any rules about how to clean up the kitchen. And um, our trash can just started to fill up with trash. And, uh, you know, I don't know, at home, it would empty every once in a while, and it just didn't happen here. So I had some pretty smart roommates. We solved the problem easily. Someone put a, uh, some masking tape right on the kitchen counter next to the trash can so that as the trash was falling over, you could tape it back onto the heap. And uh, pretty soon we were taping trash up the wall, and we had a string of trash across the ceiling. Because I don't have to take out the trash. It's not my job. I don't have to. There's no rule, right? And if we don't have to, so oftentimes we won't. What a sad way to uh, relate to one another. A man who was hit by an uninsured motorist came to me, uh, a motorist who didn't even have a driver's license. And my friend was steaming angry. Then a thousand dollars worth of damage to my car. I can't afford that. I'm going to sue this guy. You're going, come on. The guy's got nothing. You know? No, I'm going to have him force him to come and build a wall. My house. You know, with brick. So angry, red in the face. I said, well, I'll, I'll pray for you. And he came back a week later, and he had softened, and he said, you know, I just began to think about who this man was. And he humanized this guy. I understand his situation. He lives with probably more troubles than I do. He began to relate to him in terms of hesed, putting relationship over rules. Alexandra Solzhenitsyn came to Harvard in 1978, the great Russian uh, writer. And he had admiration for the Western legal system and the justice in America. But he said, whenever the tissue of life is woven of legalistic relationships, this creates an atmosphere of spiritual mediocrity that paralyzes humanity's noblest impulses. The law is good, but if the law is all you have, all it does is it tells you what not to do. It's the heart of the relationship that tells you what to do, to show kindness, to show love. If I tell my wife, I'm just, what I'm here for you is to, to not do X, Y, and Z. She would not experience love. I might be keeping the law or the rules. The way of Jesus is the way of putting relationship ahead of laws. Jesus quotes one day Hosea 6.6. The Lord speaks to Israel and says, For I desire steadfast love, hesed from you, not sacrifice. 
the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Yeah, all the rules are about the burnt offerings. I don't, that's not what I want. I want your heart. And so one day when Jesus is with a bunch of religious leaders and authorities, they look at Jesus and they say, if you were a religious leader like us, you wouldn't hang out with sinners and tax collectors and people who drink. And Jesus says, friends, it's not the healthy that need a physician, it's those who are sick. And then he quotes Hosea 6.6. He says, um, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I've come to call not the righteous, but sinners. You, you, go, you need to go think about that a little bit more. What I want is mercy, not sacrifice. What I want is your heart, not your obedience. I want you to know my love, my friendship. That's more important than the rules. Your rules are important, but it's the heart that's at the center. That's what we learn about the Hesed of Boaz, is, is, is putting relationship ahead of rules. Next, we come on to the, the Hesed of Naomi. When Ruth comes back with all this barley, she says, Blessed be the Lord. She finds out, not only is someone showing grace to Ruth, but she knows this man. His name is Boaz, and uh, he's related to her former husband. There are two laws in the background of this story of Ruth that are really important. One is the law of Leverite marriage. Leverite marriage was a way to provide for a widow whose husband died. It's a little bit weird. It involves polygamy. Okay, I got your attention. Uh, when a woman's husband died, in order to preserve her lineage and keep her property and her family within the tribe, the law of Moses prescribed that her the brother of her deceased husband was to marry her. And usually that would mean he'd have a second wife. Or a third, if he had a lot of brothers. Um, the other law is the law of the Goel, or the kinsman redeemer. Now, this law provided a person who would be a family protector or an advocate. The kinsman redeemer would be a man of social status, of means and wisdom in the clan, kind of a leader. And his job would be to protect the family. He would be an avenger of blood if someone in the tribe had been killed. He would uh, come alongside if you had a court case and serve as your advocate. If you had fallen on hard times, as I understand sometimes happens economically, and had to sell the family farm or worse, sell yourself into slavery, the kinsman redeemer had the duty to come in time and buy you back or buy your property back to keep it within the clan. Now, Boaz, uh, Naomi knows, is a kinsman redeemer. That means he has the potential to get her back on the land of Elimelech and all of his property and her two sons' property. But what does Naomi do? Well, look at uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Here we read, Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, said to Ruth, My daughter. Notice she's not, she's not calling her daughter-in-law either. She says, My daughter. It's the relationship. My daughter, I need to seek some security for you. That means a resting place or a permanent home. So that it may be well with you or be good for you, the Hebrew says. Now here's our kinsman, Boaz, with whose young women you have been working. See, he's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Now wash and anoint yourself and put on your best clothes and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. 
Ruth said to her, all that you tell me, I will do. And you go, whoa, this is PG-13. Uh, what is Naomi up to? Now, if Naomi wanted to exercise the law of the kinsman redeemer, the Goel, she'd do it differently. First of all, we find out later in the story, there's another one, another Goel, kinsman redeemer, who's closer, uh, who's a closer relative to Elimelech than Boaz. So she wouldn't go to Boaz. She'd go to another guy. And she wouldn't go in the middle of the night and meet him in his PJs. Right? She'd go to the gate of the city and she would say, hey, this is the law. And on the basis of this law, we, we, uh, we ask you to redeem us. Redeem the land. Redeem the, the, the heritage. And yet, she's not thinking about herself. Naomi is thinking about Ruth. Back in chapter 1, verse 9, she had prayed for Ruth and for uh, Orpah that you too will find husbands someday. And now she acts on that prayer to bring it to pass. She has set aside her own security and legacy in favor of Ruth because she knows three things. First of all, she knows when Naomi dies, Ruth, a Moabite woman in Bethlehem, is in big trouble. Second of all, she knows there's a man who's not the nearest kinsman redeemer, but he's been showing kindness to Ruth in the fields these last few weeks. And finally, she knows, I know where he'll be tonight, and he'll be alone in the dark. So what she's doing for Ruth is she's saying, Ruth, you go get yourself a husband. That is the way of Hesed, the way of Naomi is putting give over get. It's being more concerned with what you can give people than what they can uh, uh, return to you in favor. Let's be honest. Do we not oftentimes keep a tally of what we've given to people and what we expect in return? We think this is kind of moral calculus that keeps the universe running right. You know, that I, I dare not give more to my spouse than she gives to me or, or my roommate. That's not the way of hesed. In the office politics, you know, we think the, the game is about advancing yourself in relationship to your colleagues. I like the Dilbert cartoon that shows Dilbert spreading out papers in uh, empty cubicles and his associate comes along and says, what are you doing? Dilbert goes, well, if other departments uh, think we're not using these cubicles, then they'll come and make use of them. And his associate says, well, when we're done hosing our own company, can we hose the competitors? And Dilbert goes, well, we've got to hose our customers first. You know, just kind of think about what we can get, not what we gain. Hesed is when... There's an opening in your firm. It would be a promotion for you. More money, more influence, better title, better hours. And you say, this young woman with whom I've been working, this protege I've been mentoring, I'm going to step aside so she can take that position. That's what Naomi has done. She said, I'm not looking at my own future. I'm looking at the future of this woman, this daughter-in-law whom I love. You know, we have a lot of ministries of friendship here at UPC. One of them is called Stephen Ministry. And I, I received a letter this week from a woman who had benefited from the Stephen Ministry because someone took the time to give to her. And I just read a part of it. She says, I had re- recently moved to Seattle and was feeling lonely and depressed. I brought with me a slew of problems and felt as though I had no one to talk to. I became disconnected from God and my faith. Someone suggested I contact Stephen Ministry at UPC. I was afraid, sharing my feelings with someone who really cared, not knowing if I was worth that kind of attention. Deciding to receive care was life-changing. My Stephen minister was able to show me such compassion and care. Through her, I was able to see how God really was present through all my troubles. I gained a friend and a church family 
through the experience as well as a better understanding of what God wanted from me. To be a manager doesn't mean to accumulate all the power that you possibly can from your team so that you can get the job done. It means to give your team all that you possibly can so that they can get their jobs done. That's the leadership of Hesed. That's the way of Jesus Christ who says, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life away. And so Jesus says, when you have a luncheon, don't invite your rich friends over. Don't invite the people whose houses you hope to get a return and invitation to. Invite the poor, the weak, the lonely, who can never pay you back. And that way you demonstrate and participate in the hesed of God. Well, the final hesed aspect that we see here is that which Ruth demonstrates. And it brings us to the climax of the story down on the threshing floor in verse 6. So Ruth went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had instructed. When Boaz had eaten and drunk, by the way, it doesn't mean he was drunk, and he was in a contented mood, hmm, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And then she came stealthily and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and there lying at his feet was a woman. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your cloak over your servant, for you are next of kin. Okay, she does just what Naomi told her to do, right? She goes at night, she waits after the meal, she notes the place, she lies down and covers the feet and sits there quietly, right? No way. She jumps right up as soon as she's noticed and takes the initiative. What Ruth does in this moment is she combines these two laws, the law of leveret marriage and proposes to Boaz and the law of kinsman redeemer and obligates him to bail Naomi out. She says, I know who I am. I am Ruth. Your servant, and here she uses a word for servant that's different from the word she's been using earlier, which is a sort of a submissive word, a word that uh, lower class women would have used. This is a woman of marriageable age, a peer to you. And uh, I know who I am, and I also know who you are. You are the kinsman redeemer to my mother-in-law, Ruth, uh, Naomi. And uh, Boaz clears his throat. But do you see what Ruth is doing? She has set aside her own concerns. For her mother-in-law. The hesed of Ruth is the hesed that puts faith over fear. Think about what it took for her to walk into that threshing floor. Smelling of sweaty men and beer and food. And then all of the words in this are designed to create sexual innuendo. They really are. Many of them are euphemisms. For things we don't really celebrate outside of marriage in the Bible. And so you're wondering, what in the world is going on? And the reason for that is the, the writer has very carefully created the kind of ambiguity in the reader or the hearer's mind that Boaz would have experienced. Who are you? Do you come as a prostitute? Do you come as a thief? Do you come to besmirch my honor in this place? And then he recognizes her. She knows exactly who she is. I am Ruth. She has a faith that gives her courage to take risks, to take dramatic action, to seize the moment. Where does that kind of faith come from? I think it comes from God. 
an experience of God's love for us. This uh, yesterday morning, we had a brief moment of domestic tranquility in the Hinman household early Saturday morning. And I'm in my study working, and I hear the sounds of school supplies, the punching and clicking of uh, three-ring binders and new calculators and pens. And I thought, how many years we have done this ritual year after year? You know, 15 years in four different homes in three different states. Every move is a disorientation. You know, it's a small taste of the kind of disorientation that we get when we receive a diagnosis that scares us or we lose a job or a relationship comes to the end. We lose our bearings. And yet I thought, you know, I don't feel disorientation because there's something strangely familiar about this in the relationships. I know who I am in the midst of this transition because I know my kids, I know my wife, and and we've always gone through this together. In the same way, we're meant to know who we are in relationship to the loving fellowship of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, who calls us by name and identifies us as his daughter, as his son. I know who I am. I am yours, uh, we would say. This is the way of Hesed. It's also the way of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I tell you, the son can do nothing on his own, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. And the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. So when Jesus' disciples are scared in the boat and the storm is raging and they say, how could you sleep in the back? Jesus says, do you have such little faith? Not that if you had faith, the storm would go away, but if you had faith, you'd know how deeply loved you are. And then I am with you. And you would be not afraid to take the kind of risks that love requires. Friendship requires risk. It's a risk to get married. It's a risk to be authentic, to be who we are. Not to have to be the competent one, the smart one, the funny one all the time. This is the kind of hesed that Ruth calls us to. Well, so now you see this story arc as it sweeps through these three episodes and as we're given, I believe, sweeps through all the episodes in the history of the world. It's a story of God's great kindness for all. At the end of this story, each of these three characters receives more than they could have ever asked or imagined. And Boaz, he's got not just the inheritance of Naomi, but all these sons, both of these sons and the father. And Ruth, she's got a husband and a noble one at that. And Naomi... She's got a child, a next of kin, to preserve her future. One who would preserve the future and legacy of a great king by the name of David. One who would preserve and ensure the legacy of another great king. We read in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who is our king and who preserves our life and our future as well. And friends, by the end of this story, If we've been following the reader, we know two things for sure. One is that there's no such thing as a coincidence in life. The reader's been at pains to show us that all along when he says, and then it happened, and it just so happened by chance, he says at one point. And then look and see all these coincidences working together. The other thing we know is that our actions do matter and that we in the mystery of God are called upon to participate in the story of his hesed as though each of our acts of kindness, whether they be great or small, are reverberations, are shockwaves from the great hesed of God in Jesus Christ. And then the question for us will be, is this just a really cool story or is this the story of our lives? Let's pray.
God, you do love us. And forgive us for failing to believe that. And you do have power to be at work in our lives and the lives of people around us this day, this moment. And forgive us for forgetting that. But when we put these things together, we know that our lives are profoundly significant as we mirror your love to the people around us. Give us faith to take dramatic risks for love. Give us eyes to see the people both near and far who are not well loved, who are hard to love, and help us even this week to love them in your name. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.